0: All right. Well, again, uh, thank you for coming this morning. My name is Aaron. So glad you're all here today, especially if this is your first time with us. Uh, We're really, really thrilled to have you here. We're glad you've chosen to to worship with us this morning. Uh, We're going to look into the Bible together. Today, we're going to look in the book of Acts. So, if you have a Bible, if you'd open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you look under the seat in front of you or somewhere around on the floor, there should be one, a hardback black one. We would love for you to open that up, follow along with us. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one with you. And that's our gift to you. And especially this week, we've got this huge passage and we're not going to have time to read through all of it. I'm going to have to summarize a part of it. So I really want you this week to uh, read all of this for yourself. Find some time and go through it. Um, if, If you... We'll look at it and and you know fact check me okay um, don't take my word for any of this all right i'm just trying to to help us together focus on what God's trying to say but it's it's the Bible that has the truth in it, and so I want you to take it home, read it, and double check and make sure that this is the truth okay uh we're in Acts chapter six if you're in one of the hardback Bibles, that's on page nine hundred and fourteen uh, and we're going to start in Acts chapter six, verse eight and um Today, we're eventually going to get all the way through chapter 7 as well. But just to start out, we're going to read verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6. So please uh, listen as I read along. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand his, the wisdom And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The word of the Lord. All right, so like I said, uh, we're looking at the book of Acts. We're in a series on the book of Acts. We paused for a couple weeks for Easter. And so um, if you just joined us at Easter or if you weren't here um, before that, and so you're kind of jumping in, but we're still pretty early on in the book of Acts. But let me catch up a little bit. The book of Acts um, is a story. It's a, it's a book of history, and what it is, it's the history of the early church. So as you look at the New Testament, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are stories of Jesus' life and what he did while he was here on earth. And then as he left the earth, he left his followers with a mission, and the mission that he gave to his followers was to go out throughout the entire world and, and spread the good news of what he had done. To tell the whole world, we call it the gospel. It's the good news. It's the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he did. And he left. And, and the book of Acts is the story of how that happened, of how his followers went out and spread the gospel throughout the world. But as we come to Acts chapter 6 and 7, um, we say throughout the whole world, but, but at this point, they're still in Jerusalem. They really haven't gone anywhere. Um, The the good news of Jesus, the idea of of trusting in him for salvation is growing, and thousands of people are joining the early church, and it grows to a point where at the beginning of chapter 6, it's grown so large that they have to start creating a leadership structure just to deal with it because it's, it's exploding, but they haven't really gone out. But what happens here is we're going to see with Stephen through the end of chapter six and, and, and then through chapter seven is sort of a catalyst that kind of gets things moving. And we won't really talk about that part of it this week, but as we go on next week, we're going to see that what happens this week is a push that kind of gets the church moving out of Jerusalem and out into the rest of the world. So if you've been here and we've been going through Acts and Jesus said, go into the whole world. And we've been talking about, this is how the church started, and you're like, where's the rest of the world? It's coming, and this is kind of what gets it started. But to get there, um, let's take a look at what happens here to this guy named Stephen. Stephen was mentioned earlier in chapter 6, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. As the church grew and they had to create a leadership structure, he was one of the first leaders that they raised up. And uh, this is the story, and a little spoiler here, of how Stephen is killed. And he becomes the first martyr of the early church, one of the first people killed for his belief in Jesus Christ and for proclaiming and telling other people about Jesus Christ. As we look at this story this morning, we're going to see a contrast. But I want to be careful that we're seeing a contrast of the right thing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It would be easy for us to look at this story and to compare and say there's two kinds of people in this story there's the good guys and there's bad guys. And Stephen's a good guy and he does the right things. And it says his face is like an angel. And so he's a good guy. And so we should be like Stephen. And then there's bad guys. And that's the leaders of of the temple, the leaders of the synagogue, the the Jewish council. And they're bad guys because they don't like Stephen. And at the end they kill him. And so be like Stephen and don't be like the bad guys. And a lot of times that's how we approach the scriptures. We look at at these stories and we're like, here's the good guys, be like the good guys. Here's the bad guys, don't be like them. But there's there's a flaw there. And we'll see as we go through this that the flaw is that there's nothing intrinsically better about Stephen than the people who end up killing him. That there's nothing about Stephen that makes him a better person fundamentally than the people who accuse him and, and later murder him. Instead, what I want you to see this morning, and the contrast that we want to look at, is not between the two different people. The contrast is in what these two groups of people are trusting in, and how they view the world, and what it is that they're expecting or they're looking to, to bring them happiness, to bring them security, to bring them peace, And in order to do that, in order to contrast this, I'm going to use two words, but we're going to have to define these words because these are words that get used a lot, and they get used in a lot of different ways, and there's a wide range of meanings to these two words. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page. Today, we're going to contrast religion with the gospel. But I need to explain to you what I mean by those words, because religion, most of us when we hear religion, we think of of church, and probably your expectation would be as, uh, as a pastor... You know, as a guy who kind of lives in church or whatever, you know, whatever you think pastors do most of the time, um, I'm probably like, yay, pro religion, right? That's my job, you know. When I'm filling out any kind of form, what field do you work in? I have to click on religion. So I'm all about religion, right? But but I'm going to be talking about religion as a negative thing, and so I have to explain why that is. Okay, so let me define religion for you in this way religion is our own rituals and practices done in our own power to prove our own righteousness to God. Let me explain what I mean by that. Religion is anything that we do to try to get ourselves closer to God. When we look at ourselves, when we see that, that we believe there's a God and we believe that we don't quite measure up or we're not quite good enough, then we have to do something to get closer to God. Then whatever those things that we do are to get closer to God, that's religion. And usually they're good things, to be honest, Okay, um, we, we try to do good things and, and whether it's going to church or giving or praying or, or being kind to other people, trying to not do wrong and sin or trying to, to help others or social justice or whatever, when we do those things, because we believe that by doing those things, we're going to get ourselves closer to God, that's religion. The contrast with that is with the gospel. So let me define the gospel for you as the story of God's grace to show us his favor by placing Christ's righteousness on us through his sacrifice and resurrection on our behalf. I I wrote that down uh, this week when I was preparing this because I was like, I need a good, simple, clear definition of the gospel. And so I wrote that and then I was looking at it and I was like, that is not clear or simple at all. (laughs) Like that is such a big, complicated thing. So let me simplify it this way. Religion is anything we do to go to God. The gospel is God coming to us. Okay, the gospel, the gospel is we're not good enough. And we try and we try and we try through our religion, we try to be good enough. We try to do whatever we can to find peace with God. But we can't and we can never be good enough. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and you know you always fail. You never measure up. And so God, in his love for us, sent Jesus Christ, who was God, and he lived a perfect life, that that life that we're trying to live. All that perfection we're trying to achieve, Jesus did it. He actually lived that perfect life, and then he died. And he died and took punishment for sins he never committed. He took punishment for all the sins we commit when we're trying to be good enough, And he took the punishment for those sins on himself. And when we trust and believe that he took those punishments on himself, and and then he rose again to prove that he has power over sin and he has power over death. And he defeated sin. And when we trust in that, and we're going to talk later on what it means to trust in that. But when we trust in that, then we have a relationship with God. And it's not because of anything we do. It's solely and completely because of what Jesus did for us. So religion is what I'm trying to do to get to God, but the gospel is what God did to come to me. So that's the contrast we're going to see in this passage. Not a contrast between two inherently different groups of people, but a contrast between two inherently different ways of viewing God and relating to him. So first, I want to look at what happens when we live a life that's focused on religion. When we live a life where we're trying by our own effort to pull ourselves up, to get closer to God, to be all that we can in him, to to try to make ourselves better, what happens? So look again at the story. We'll start in verse 8 again. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen, who's a leader in the early church, is performing miracles. And he's performing these miracles by by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. He's giving him power to do miracles, and people are seeing these things, and they're amazed. They're in awe of it. They're so in awe. The verse before us told us, uh, verse 7 told us, a, a lot of people were believing the gospel, even a lot of the priests were believing the gospel because they were seeing these amazing things. And some of those, verse 9, who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Because Stephen's doing this great stuff. They come and they're like, this is not right. And they want to have an argument with him. Why? Why would they be upset that somebody is doing great things, because the first result of living a life focused on religion is jealousy. And so these people see Stephen doing these amazing things, and they're trying on their own to be amazing and to be great, and they see how great he is, and their response is jealousy. And this is what happens in our hearts when we live a life that's focused on what I can do to prove my worth to God. When we see other people who are having success, whose marriage seems better than ours, or whose kids seem better than ours, or whose grades are better than ours, who have better relationships than we have, who, who just seem to have a better life, When we're living a life that's focused on trying to be good enough, when we see other people getting something better, we become jealous. Because it's not fair. Because they're not working as hard as we're working. Because I'm doing everything I can to get to God, and you're not, and you're getting the blessings, and I'm not. And that's not fair. And so it starts with jealousy. But it goes beyond that. It says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't just get in an argument and win. He's doing miracles and he's being led by God to speak the truth and they can't fight it and so they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they go and they, they, they get people to lie and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses. Because when we're living a life focused on religion, not only do we become extremely jealous, but we we have to become deceptive. Because our our religious life is focused on us being good enough, and when we realize we're not, we've got to fake it. We've got to hide. And we've got to put on an image to make other people believe we're good enough. So a life focused on religion, first of all, it leads us to jealousy, and then it leads us to deception. Deception. And we're covering up because we know on the inside we're not where we should be. But we don't want anybody else to know. And so we lie. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, who will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us? Why were they angry? Why did they have him arrested? Why? Okay, they're trying to to live a religious life, and here comes somebody who's teaching something different. Why does that make them mad? Because, and, and it's here in their accusation, because what they see from what Stephen is saying, when he's telling about the grace of God, about that gospel we were talking about, what they see is that he's poking holes in their image that they've been putting on. That he's he's poking holes in their religion. That they've worked so hard for so long to establish this system that they could work with to try to make themselves right with God. And here comes somebody who's trying to knock it down. He's trying to wreck their system. And that makes them mad. The accusation is that this man is speaking words against this holy place, talking about the temple. This is our place where we go to be religious. And he's speaking against it. And and the law, the rules that we follow to try to make ourselves good enough. And he's saying things against our rules. And he says this, Jesus of Nazareth is, Nazareth is going to destroy the place. He's going to change the customs. He says, Jesus, Stephen is saying that Jesus is going to change what we've been doing. He's going to mess with our traditions. He's going to rock our identity. And look, we have to remember this context here. The Israelites, the, the, the Jews in that day, Judaism was more than just their religion. It was their religion, but it was also their nationality. It was who they were, and it goes way, way back. And so what they're seeing is not just that Jesus is shaking up their customs. That's a part of it. But they're seeing this as a threat to their very identity. When we live a life that's focused on religion, And by religion, I mean anything we do to try to make ourselves better on our own. It becomes who we are, it becomes our identity. And it's not just, I want to have a good career, I am my career. And it's not just, I want to have a good marriage, it's, I am my marriage. And not just, not just that I want to succeed in school, but I am my grades. And when anything messes with that identity, I get really, really angry. And that's what happened here. And they bring in Stephen and they accuse him of teaching against their religion. And Stephen's answer is, And again, we don't have time uh, to read through all 50 verses of Stephen's answer. But Stephen's answer is fascinating because they bring him in and they say, you're teaching against our religion. You're trying to undermine and destroy everything that's been built up over the years. Basically, they're saying you're going against God by going against our religion. Stephen's answer is, is really pretty harsh. Because his answer is, no, your religion is going against God. And it has for years and years and years. Basically what Stephen does in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, is he gives them a history of the Jewish people. He gives them basically the history going all the way back and starting with Abraham, to whom God gave this promise, this covenant, this, this, this pact that I will make you into this great nation, which would become the nation of Israel. And, and through Abraham then were born others, including a man named Jacob, whose name became, was changed to Israel, who their entire nation was named after. And, and Israel, Jacob's 12 sons, became the heads of the 12 different tribes of Israel. And Stephen gives them this whole history going from Abraham through, through Jacob, through Joseph, through Moses, through David and Solomon. And the people he's talking to are the heads, the leaders of the Jewish high council and the leaders of the synagogue. They, they knew the history of Israel. So what we've got to understand is, is Stephen's not just giving them a, a history lesson. He's got a point, and the point he makes, and I would encourage you to go back this week, read through this, and see how he drives this point home over and over and over again. The history of the nation of Israel is a history of the people rejecting God and not listening when he tries to do something new. Or, excuse me, that's a bad way of phrasing it, not listening when he speaks to them in a way that they're not ready for. When he speaks to them in a way that challenges them, that pushes on them, that they reject him over and over and over again. It goes all the way back to Joseph. Jacob was the father of 12 sons. They're the 12 heads of the different tribes of Israel. And 11 of them became jealous and turned against their brother and rejected him. Why? Because God spoke to him and spoke through him and they didn't like what he said. And so they rejected him. And then it goes to Moses. And when the Israelites were in captivity and God spoke to Moses and sent him to to free them and they rejected him. And he went out and he was in the wilderness for, for, for a long time before he came back and finally led the people out of captivity. And as he leads them out of captivity and he's trying to lead them to this land that God promised them and they reject him again. And they reject him to a point where they're not just rejecting God, but then they start turning to false gods. And in their rejection of God and turning to false gods, they start worshiping idols. And then, after they do get the land that he had promised, they build a temple, or Solomon builds a temple to God, and, and they take that temple, which is supposed to be a place that they can go to worship God, and they use that temple and start worshiping the temple itself, rather than the God that it was supposed to be a place for them to worship. And over and over and over again, God speaks and they reject him. And in verse 51, Stephen sums the whole thing up like this. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you you. Over the course of his defense here, kind of his legal uh, argument, Stephen uses the word father or patriarch, another word for father. He uses it like oh, almost 30 times in these, these verses because he wants them to understand. You're saying I'm speaking against your fathers? Do you understand what your fathers did? Your fathers rejected God over And over and over again, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Why? Because when our religion, when what we've set up, when what we've wrapped our identity in, when what we've decided is what's most important, when that gets threatened, when that gets pushed on, when somebody points out to us that it's not actually going to save us, that makes us mad and we get angry. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And I mean, this is an intense story, okay? And it's brutal and they're they're about to murder murder him brutally. However, the idea that they, they stopped their ears I'm just picturing this murderous rage, this this mob rushing at this man, ready to kill him like this, (laughs) can't hear you, la, 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 la. Because why? Why? Because when we're living a life that's so focused on religion, it blinds us from seeing the truth. It blinds us from seeing God's truth. We don't want to hear anything that contradicts this little ideal that we've set up of what life is supposed to be. And if I just do these things, I'm going to have peace with God. And when somebody says anything that contradicts us, we don't want to hear it. And so we keep our eyes shut as tight as we can. We keep our ears covered as as tightly as we can because we don't want to know. But what we're blocking out is the truth. And ultimately, it leads to death. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's called foreshadowing. We'll come back to that. Not this week. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, He fell asleep. Their devotion to their religion, not to God. So this is not about God. Okay, to them, this is about their system. This is about them. This is about what they've set up, their identity, who they are, their temple, their practices. And their devotion to that Leads them ultimately to murder. in, uh, in 2013, uh, in 2013, the University of Alabama, the University of Auburn, uh, played each other. They play every year. It's an it's a intense college football rivalry. It's known as the Iron Bowl. It's one of the most intense rivalries in college football. It's been even more intense the last few years because both teams have been um, nationally relevant, really strong national powerhouses. In 2013, they were both ranked in the top five in the nation. Alabama was undefeated and the odds-on favorite to win the national championship. Um, through crazy circumstances, at the end of the game, the game was tied. They kicked what could Alabama kicked what could have been the winning field goal, but it fell short, and an Auburn player caught the ball in the end zone, returned it all the way back downfield for a touchdown, which is a really, really rare play in football. Um, the odds of it happening as the last play in one of the most important games of the year are just its just one in a million chance of the game ending this way. So Alabama fans were, were, were devastated. I mean, crushed. They were thinking they were they were rolling to a national championship, and even at that point in the game, they were confident they were going to win this game, and then just it all just crumbled. <clears throat> now, some Alabama fans were more upset than others. A woman named Adrian Brisky had gone to watch the game at a party, and uh, with other Alabama fans, and when the game ended, they were upset. All of them were upset, but uh, some of the fans were not as upset as, as Adrian was. In fact, one, uh, Michelle Shepard, who uh, was not a friend, and they didn't know each other, but they both found themselves at the same party. Michelle Shepard and her sister were joking about the fact that it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as, like, I don't know if the, Heat had lost, the Miami Heat had lost the NBA Finals. Adrian Brisky heard that and took exception to their laughing about Alabama's loss. So she pulled out a gun and shot and killed Michelle Shepard. She murdered another woman because she wasn't upset enough that Alabama lost a football game. Now, we can all sit here and say that's absurd. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who would do that over sports? But the point is not sports. Sports. The point is, Adrian Brisky, like so many of us, wrapped her identity into something, and that something had to succeed so that her identity could be validated and when the something that her identity was wrapped up in did not succeed, it crushed her because it rocked her not because she was upset that a team lost a game but because her identity was being questioned but the problem wasn't just that the team lost somebody else had the audacity to say that what she had invested her life in was not worth investing her life in and that was too much for her and we could say i would never never get that wrapped up in sports but I I would venture to say that all of us, all of us, myself included, have something or things that we wrap our identity in and it becomes our religion. Something that we're trusting in, that we're placing our faith in to succeed and if it doesn't come through for us, we don't know who we are. I don't know what it is for you. It could be, um, it, it could be your your physical fitness, your health, how you are perceived physically, and you have done so much to take care of yourself through exercise, through diet. And if anybody dares tell you that that's not all there is to life, that being healthy is not the most important thing, you get angry. Or if somehow your health is threatened, it would rock your. World. Maybe it's your political affiliation. It's especially prominent around this time when we're going through an election cycle that we tie ourselves into to some party or some person or some cause. And we are so wrapped up in that, and that is our identity so much that when other people say negative things about our party or our candidate, we get so mad because that's who we are. And we take it not as an insult to some abstract group of ideas or to some person who lives thousands of miles away that we'll never meet. We take it as an insult to ourselves. Maybe it's your moral reputation. You have been working so hard to be good. You want to be the good girl. You want to be the good guy. You want to be the one that everybody knows they can count on, because you're always honest. You're always there. You always do the right thing. And anything that threatens your reputation makes you so angry. And when anyone accuses you of anything wrong, you have to get so defensive because you have to prove you're good. Maybe it's your academic achievement or your career advancement. You have to be number one. Maybe it's relationships and you have to have a great marriage or you have to have a great boyfriend or a great girlfriend or you have to have the best behaved kids or the most successful kids or whatever it is. And if anything threatens those relationships, especially those people in the relationship, you get so mad at them. I mean, have you ever wondered why the people who are supposed to be a part of the closest relationships on earth, that person who's your significant other, how do those people who pledge to love each other forever end up hating each other so deeply? Could it be because you're so invested in that relationship being the thing that gives you an identity? That when anything threatens it, you get angry. Maybe it's your financial security. You have to know that you have enough. You have to know that nothing's gonna happen that takes you unaware, that you have enough in the bank, that your budget is clear, and if anything threatens that, you would do anything to make sure that that security is maintained. And you say, yeah, 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 all that, whatever, whatever. I wouldn't kill anybody. Okay, these guys, this, this, this story we're reading, they, they murdered a person. I wouldn't kill anybody. But let me, let me point this out. Whether you physically kill someone or not, those idols of your heart, those things you're trusting in, those false religions always lead to death. Whether it's the death of a relationship, and you've seen that, haven't you? A relationship ended and destroyed because somebody, okay, let's be honest, because you and I, because we were so intent on maintaining that thing, that piece of our identity, and a relationship was destroyed by it. Maybe it's you. Maybe you, on the inside, feel like you have died because you have worked so hard and tried so hard to achieve that thing and when it didn't come through and when somebody poked a hole and all the air went out of it that you just shriveled up on the inside and maybe maybe you come here this morning and you know that it was a false identity that it wasn't fulfilling But on the inside, you're just feeling empty now because you don't know which way to turn because you invested everything you had into this thing that you thought, if I did it hard enough, if I did it well enough, if I could just be good enough, and you failed or it failed you. And now on the inside, you just feel broken and empty. So where do you go with that? Well, there is hope. And like I said, this is a contrast that we're drawing this morning. And not a contrast between these bad guys and this good guy, but between that idea of following religion, which is going to lead to jealousy, to deception, to anger, to blindness to the truth, and ultimately to death. It's a contrast between that and what it looks like to trust in the gospel. To trust in what Jesus Christ did for you. To trust in that and that alone to bring you a sense of fulfillment. To bring you righteousness. The word righteousness means being right. And so many of us use our religion. We try to leverage ourselves to try to be right, to try to prove that we're right. And the only path to true righteousness is through what Jesus Christ did to us. And look at the effect it has on the life of Stephen. First of all, in verse eight, Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was empowered to help others because of his trust in the gospel. And when they disputed with him, he spoke up. And when they brought him into court, he didn't shrink back. Instead, he spoke out against their false and empty religion. Why? Because, number one, trusting in the gospel gives you a humble confidence. Not in yourself, and that's why I use the word humble, but a boldness in Jesus Christ and in what he's done. If your security is not resting in you, because you know you'll fail, If your security is resting in one who will never fail, then you can be bold and you can have confidence and you can speak up when you need to speak up and you can stand firm when you need to stand firm, not because you're great, Not because you're amazing, not because you've got it all figured out. Stephen's defense of himself never, ever, ever says, I'm a good guy. He never talks about anything about himself. He points everything to God. Look at what he said, or what, yeah, what he says in verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Living in our religion blinds us to see the truth, but living in the gospel opens our eyes to see the glory of God. We all have a desire for that something more in our lives. And that's what we try to, to, to use our religion to find. But the only way to see it The only way to truly grasp a hold of that greatness is through the gospel. Because it's only when we recognize that us on our own, we are not good enough, that we step out of the way. And we look to the only one who is good enough or ever could be good enough. And it's Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And in that we see the glory of God. But when you're living, listen, when you're living a religious life, you're never looking at God. You're always looking at yourself. You're spending all your time trying to figure out if you're doing it right, if you're being good enough. And it's a constant battle of, I messed up. I've got to try harder. I've got to do it this way. Maybe I'll try this step. Give me more advice. Give me more action steps. What do I need to do? Do, do, do me, me, me. And it's all about you. And all you're looking at is yourself. And when you're looking at yourself, you can't see God. And when you step back, when you stop focusing on yourself and your effort and your goodness or your badness or any of that, and you just look at Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, you see God's amazing glory but it's only through the gospel. And not only does living in light of the gospel help us to see God more clearly, but it helps us see other people more clearly. It changes the way we see the people around us. Look again at the end. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. With his dying breath, He asked God to forgive the people who were killing him. (laughs) When 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 I'm living in religion, when I'm living in my own power, when I'm trying to do everything I can to be good enough, when somebody confronts me with my problems, my first impulse is not to forgive them. When somebody yanks the rug out from everything, under everything that I've been trying to build up, My first impulse is not to bless them or ask God to bless them, unless it's in that kind of sarcastic way that we say God bless you, but we don't really mean it. Maybe that, but otherwise, no. My first impulse is to fight back, is to defend myself, not to ask God to forgive them. How in the world could Stephen, with his dying breath, look at the people who were killing him and ask God to forgive them? The only possible answer is this, it's because he looked at the people who were killing him and he saw that they were no different than him. They were people who needed a savior, just like him. Because he knew that where he was in his relationship with God was not based on his works. It was not based on anything he'd done. It wasn't because he was Stephen one of the first leaders of the early church. No. It was because of the grace of God. It was because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because that was true for him, he knew he was a sinner too. He knew he was just as bad as them. And he knew that if he didn't have Jesus Christ, he'd be one of the ones throwing stones. When we truly understand the gospel, what we see is there's no difference between us and anyone else. And the people that we judge, when we're in our religious mode and we're actually really hitting it, you know, when we're getting it right, when we're checking off all the boxes, then we look around at everybody who's not and it's like, not as good as me. Wish you could be better, man. Tough, tough. I'm sorry you have to see how awesome I am. (laughs) And then when we fail and all that gets whisked away, it's rage. But when we're living in the gospel, we understand that every accomplishment we have is not of us. Every time we don't sin, it's not because of our own willpower. It's because of God's grace. And the evil that we see in the world, we know we are just as prone to it. but by God's grace, we've been saved. And so our desire, when we're living in the gospel, our desire is for other people to know that same grace and that same forgiveness. And so it leads us to view other people not as worse than us, but simply in need of the same forgiveness that we found because we know we didn't get there on our own and we didn't earn it. And we want them to experience the same grace. And that's how Stephen could, with his dying breath, ask God to forgive the people who were killing him. Ultimately, ultimately, living in the gospel made Stephen ready to die. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He didn't cry out begging for one more chance to make things right. He wasn't terrified of what was coming next because he didn't know if he was good enough. He tried, but Stephen's not dying, fingers crossed, hoping maybe he did enough good and his good will outweigh his bad. Because his trust in the gospel, not in himself, prepares him death. It gives him a confident assurance that when he dies, he'll be with God. I wrestled with this for years and years and years in my life. This idea of how can I know 100% for sure that I have peace with God? And I, I was in church um, I went to, I've, I've gone to church my whole life <clears throat> and, uh, and had heard the gospel and had heard that it's through trusting in Christ's sacrifice on my behalf that I can have peace with God. But I was always questioning if I did it right. I know I'm supposed to believe. A- am I believing in the right way? I, I know I'm saved for- through faith. Do I-, do I have enough faith? Is my faith the right kind of faith? Am I, am I trusting in the right way? What does that look like? What does that mean? Do I have to pray a certain prayer? What are the words? Did I get the words right? Okay, I, got, I, I, I prayed the prayer. Now do I need to get baptized? How many times? What, what does that need to look like? How does I, how, I I've, I've prayed, I've been baptized. What is, what is my life supposed to look like now? How do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And it wasn't until somebody pointed out that peace with God, it comes through our trust in what he did. But it's not about our trust or how we trust or how well we trust or if we do it right. It's about what we're trusting in. Let me give you an example that I hope maybe will help you visualize this. Think about a ladder, okay, like an extension ladder. Okay, um, if if you are not fond of, of heights, like I am, I'm, I would not use the word afraid. Um, I would say healthily intimidated. Okay, um, by heights. If you're going to go up on a ladder, you want to know the ladder's going to hold you, right? Okay, but here's the thing about an extension ladder: the the ladder itself matters. But the ladder itself is not nearly as important as what it's resting against. Do you understand me on this? Okay, I could take this same metal ladder, which looks very sturdy and very secure, and lean it up against a a paper wall. It does not matter how strong or secure that ladder is. If it's leaning against paper, I'm going down. Okay, your faith no matter how strong and secure your faith is, no matter how hard you're believing, it does not matter how strong your faith is if your faith is in the wrong thing. And if your faith is in you and your works and what you can do and in your religion and in your practices and in your rituals, if that's what you're leaning your ladder against, you're leaning against a paper wall, because you will fail, and other people will fail you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, that's a solid foundation, okay? And it doesn't matter. I'm going to stretch the analogy a little bit here, okay? It doesn't matter what, how strong your ladder is, okay? You could have the most rickety. I used to have this ladder that it was left with the house when we bought it. It was outside, it was laying up against the side of the garage. It had like so many vines twisted around it, okay? I wanted to use it one day. I had to go out there with the weed whacker just to get the ladder free. I mean, this thing was a mess and it was like shaky and like, you could use, it doesn't matter. Now that one, I'm stretching the analogy here. I don't know that that would be that safe, but when it comes to faith, it doesn't matter if you have the most rickety, most weak, most, most feeble faith in the world, what matters is what your faith is in. That you're trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And it doesn't matter if you said the right words, and it doesn't matter if you um, prayed a prayer or you got baptized the right way, or if you, none of that matters. What matters is, are you believing? Are you trusting solely and completely? in what Jesus Christ did for you. That's all that matters. So the simple question this morning, very simple, very simple question. What are you trusting in? What are you leaning your ladder on? Are you trusting in your religion and your works, or are you trusting in the gospel? And you go, well, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I must be doing okay. But let's ask some questions, okay? And I mean, first, on the foundational level, have you responded to the gospel by faith? That good news of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that is true? Has God saved you? Because that's like entryway. Okay, that's like point one, but it's more than just that. Okay, and it's not like I believe that and then I'm done because it goes on. And so believers, are you living in that? Are you living in that faith? Are you living a life trusting in the gospel to open your eyes to see the glory of God? Or are you living a life falling back on your own performance to bring you happiness? Is your life marked more by by anger and resentment or by peace and forgiveness? Is it marked more by deception and cover-up or by a humble boldness? Do you live in fear of being discovered for who you truly are? Or are you free to be open and say, this is who I am, but it's not about who I am. It's about what Jesus Christ did for me. Those are the questions we need to ask ourselves. It's not about be like Stephen. It's not about don't be like the bad guys who stoned him. What are you trusting in, in your life? We're going to take some time to reflect on this. We're going to put some questions up on the screen. I want you to think through those things. But more than anything, I want you to ask yourself, what are you trusting in? What are you leaning into? Is it your religion? Is it the fact that you go to church? Are you trusting in that? The fact that you, you read your Bible and pray? Or the fact that you work really hard? Are you trusting... Are you trusting in the good works that you've done? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you? Let's pray, we'll we'll reflect, and then in a moment we'll, we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. God, we're not. We're not worthy on our own. By our own works, by our own merits, we would never, ever measure up. But you, by your good grace, loved us. Jesus Christ died for us in our sin. While we were still rejecting you and hating you, you loved us. So thank you. And please awaken in us a new and ever-present awareness of our need for you and your grace in our lives. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.